This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, book lovers. I'm excited for yet another episode of the New Books Network podcast. Uh, this is Lee Pierce, professor of uh, assistant professor of rhetoric at, and communication at SUNY Geneseo. My title keeps changing, so I can never remember what I'm doing. And I am really happy to be here today to talk about a book that I just finished yesterday and actually liked so much. I've already uh, put it in my reading list for a class that I'm teaching next semester on uh, media studies and morality. And that book is Claire Daniels, Mediating Morality. And it has a subtitle, um, The Politics of Teen Pregnancy in the Post-Welfare Era. And Claire is an administrative assistant professor of women's leadership at the Newcomb College Institute at Tulane. Uh, Claire uses she pronouns. And Claire, you're all right if I call you Claire for the purposes of the interview? Yes, absolutely. Great. All right. So here's my spiel. Um, What's really fascinating to me about this book is I, I don't think it takes a genius, obviously, to understand that the that there are some interesting and often problematic ways that teen pregnancy has been portrayed slash disciplined in the contemporary era. And obviously, this is a, an area of research that is not is not uh, what's the word I'm looking for. It's not it's not like there's so many books on this that I can't even read them all. But you know, it's it's an argument that I'm familiar with. But what happens in this book that I found very fascinating is number one. Claire links it very specifically to policy. And so in terms of a rhetorical analysis of the various, and I like the way the text, the texts are very unusual. It's not all TV or all advertisement um, or all consumptive practices, say in fashion or social media. But in fact, it's a variety of different places, including uh, different state legislatures and different activist organizations, where even though they ostensibly have different purposes, because some of them are more sympathetic or more understanding of some of the race class uh, issues that get into teen pregnancy um, and preventative maintenance, they're all kind of coming into this same individual moral responsibility argument that insulates the state from having to take responsibility for teen pregnancy as sort of a symptom of a wider policy flaw. But this book links that very closely to policy. And I love that in the very in the introduction uh, that, that, that Dr. Daniel says very specifically that the welfare state was dismantled in 1996. Like there's a year we know who was president then. This is when it happened, and at that moment, there was kind of not that it started it, but it was a crystallization moment where suddenly things like teen pregnancy became just individual failure issues, and they no longer had even any kind of purchase on the political imaginary. And then we see political legislation in the post-welfare era start to get increasingly problematic. And I really just like the way that this rhetorical analysis is linked very closely to the legislative context in which that comes to emerge. Because, of course, 
pop culture and politics are deeply embedded in one another. And for change to happen, you have to kind of work at both levels. And often, I think uh, rhetorical scholars tend to work very much at the cultural level or the level of the text. And we're not always great uh, with policy analysis. So that was really what stood out to me as, as this book. And so anyone who is interested in just really excellent writing and terrific critique and also the unique contemporary present in which we're living in terms of the decline of public policy, but the increased shame kind of that we put around these quote unquote moral failure issues, this is definitely the book for you. And at that, um, and it was published by the way, by University of Massachusetts Press. So as always, we love to thank our university presses for continuing to support our work. So with that little blurb in mind for the reader so that they have a basic understanding of the book, I'll go ahead and uh, kick it over to you, Claire, if you want to add anything just in terms of big picture ideas or what you sort of think is the basic takeaway so that the reader who hasn't read the book can protectively enjoy the interview. Also, hello, nice to meet you. Um, Welcome to the show. Hello, nice to meet you as well. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for that great summary and the kind words um, about the book. Um, I think that this This project really did come out of a desire to, as you said, sort of connect um, what was happening in the political realm to what seemed like a a huge surge in popular culture texts about teen pregnancy in the post-welfare era. And um, and by that, I mean after welfare reform of 1996. And so sort of the way that I got interested in this project was that I... um, my master's thesis was on the rhetoric of the innocent child in the, the legislative debates that led to um, welfare reform. And so it was kind of in that context that I started to uh, notice all of these new television shows um, and movies about teen pregnancy in the 2000s, sort of the first decade of, of two, the 2000s. And um, thought back to the experience of reading all of those uh, debates and how important teen pregnancy was um, as a rhetorical tool in those debates to kind of generate a consensus around passing this really punitive uh, welfare reform policy and wanted to understand what the connection was between that, um, that surge in popular culture texts and the the policy context and the political context after welfare reform was passed. So that's sort of how I ended up looking at it through that lens. And what I found was that there was uh, an organization, a really important organization that sort of is um, a player in the various chapters in my book called the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, which has actually recently rebranded itself. It's now called Power to Decide. Um, But that this organization was called for by President Clinton as part of welfare reform, um, as a private approach to uh, a a problem that was seen as uh, really detrimental to our nation's future. Um, And so it was, and then this organization goes on to uh, be a partner with various television um, producers of these texts. So there really was a very material connection between the political realm and the po- and the realm of popular culture in a way that I think is kind of unique, maybe um, isn't as 
maybe we can't sort of speaking to what you said in your introduction about how uh, rhetoric scholars maybe don't do as much policy analysis. Maybe that this was a unique situation in which that was even um, wit, perhaps more po- more possible than um, it is in other situations. So I guess I'll just add that. Great. Well, um, yeah, I mean, obviously the the decision, as I've already said, the decision to integrate policy with culture, with pop culture here, and not just, but, but you know, activism. And I wouldn't even say this is like a, a like a pop culture book. I mean, one of one of the sets of texts you analyze come from culture, but obviously, I, I really I just appreciate all of the different domains that this book cuts across because it really drives the point home about how widespread this privatization of responsibility has become, and how we sort of use that figure of the pregnant teen mom as as. Not that it's the only place where we do that, but it kind of becomes the one where that logic gets really deeply truthified, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that that was, again, that was one of the things that really struck me in in the legislative debates leading up to welfare reform. Why is this, what is it about teen pregnancy that um, is such a, a motivator of a variety of different things. So how, how do we connect this issue to things that it seems like maybe they don't, it doesn't connect to at all. And especially in this post-welfare um, era that I'm writing about where we see, um, at least my argument is that um, the, the discourse that is being forwarded in these television shows and in the social media um, advocacy work that's being done by organizations like the national campaign and the Candies Foundation is a detachment of teen pregnancy from what was previously a, a discussion about poverty and welfare. And now in, in the post-welfare era, we see that um, teen pregnancy has been almost, almost completely removed from a discussion of welfare. And um, what I guess the question that I ask is what work does that do? And I think um the work that it does is that it prevents us from reevaluating that policy and thinking about whether that policy has accomplished its stated goals. And if we can, if we, if we're now thinking about teen pregnancy as a problem that maybe isn't related to poverty or systemic inequality at all, um, then we don't, we're not necessarily motivated to revisit that issue, which isn't to say that the discourse about teen pregnancy prior to welfare reform was at all unproblematic. Um, I, I, my work builds on a lot of other people's work, as you mentioned in the intro, um, that shows that the various ways in which we attribute other social problems to teen pregnancy, like poverty, crime, um, high school dropout, et cetera, that that the attribution of those problems as, as being caused by teen pregnancy is a misunderstanding of the causality and that it's, it, it's more accurate to understand teen pregnancy as an, a symptom of or an index of poverty. And so in, in those pre-welfare reform debates, there was a heavy pathologization of communities of poverty and um, especially it was a racialized discourse in which um, black and Latina t- 
teen moms were being denigrated. And so I wouldn't by any means advocate for a return to that. Um, But what I do suggest in my book is that that discourse, that pre-welfare reform discourse still allowed for the possibility of talking about structural issues like the, like the structure of our welfare system, um, the structure of our education system, our healthcare systems. And we don't see that at all in the post-welfare discourse, even in the political realm and in the popular realm and in the, in the advocacy, national advocacy realm. I think, um, I think the other thing about this is that when we when we look at the example, so if we look at the media chapter, for example, that sort of looks at where this culturally is happening in TV shows and movies and stuff, these are not fictional texts. They're ostensibly nonfiction, right? They're reality TV, which you point out, and and that's the problem is that there's almost this, and we've that the system itself, well, the discourse itself that authorizes a system is is choosing to construct this as quote the real way it happens. But of course, that's part of the discourse, not only the laws, but also the cultural texts that make us think that this is, in fact, a moral failure on the part of the people to whom this has happened. It's like, well, yeah, but that's but, it, but they don't make this up. I mean, I'm, this is like real TV. And you're like, no, it's it's selected and constructed as part of the discourse. So, again, one of the many benefits to the book, cutting such a wide swath across such a variety of different domains. So, and I think the best thing typically, now that we've gotten the basic arguments out, it, with a book like this, it's always interesting because I love to do the textual analysis. So I always want to jump into the example. But of course, you did a fabulous job with the contextualization of the legislation that that has dismantled the welfare state and kind of the discourse of the discourse that's been authorizing that and how it's happened and kind of how we've let it continuously slip over the last, you know, 25 years or so. So I guess from your end, is there a certain, do you want to kind of jump into a text and maybe look at a specific thing that we can analyze, or would you rather talk more about the historical context for the project? Um, I'm fine with you jumping into an example. Okay. You don't mind? Because I really wanted to talk about the pregnancy pact. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And part of it, too, is I, I, I do host on the media and communications channel, and so I would imagine um, a lot of my readers sort of like the the language media textual analysis stuff. So I'm just, you know, give the people what they want, as they say. So, yeah, if you want to talk about that Pregnancy Pact, uh, which was a Lifetime movie that came out in 2010, and I remember this, and am I remembering correctly that this was a real thing that happened? Yes. So it's based well, on... Of course. Oh, yeah. But once again, like real in the sense that it was a, a based on a true story, but, you know, whether or not the Pregnancy Pact, the film, is some kind of deep representation or, or whether... I don't know. That's a whole other issue. But yeah, if you want to run with that, I thought this was a pretty cool starter point for the project. Yeah, I think um, it's it's based on some real events, but it's it's unclear whether those events are at all similar to what was portrayed in the film. I think, um, depending on who you ask. <laughs> but um, so the film, yeah, it's and it starts by suggesting in the beginning that this is based on true events and and showing clips of actual news coverage of these teenagers in. Um, Massachusetts in a small town in Massachusetts who all got pregnant around the same time. And then the film uh, follows one of uh, one character who is a fictionalized depiction of one of these teenagers who got pregnant. 
um, and her sort of path toward becoming pregnant. And, um, and, and then at the same time, there's a blogger who was, um, uh, grew up in the same town and then has left and has become a blogger and comes back to report on this, this supposed pregnancy pact. And, um, so it's kind of an interesting back and forth between, or it's a, it's a, a movie in which you, I, I think you're asked to identify with the blogger trying to understand what this irrationality is that's happening in this town that's causing these girls to want to get pregnant. So it's an interesting example, I think, of the this larger discourse in which we see teen pregnancy being being portrayed as a kind of a backwards thing to do. And so this kind of um, is feeds into this larger argument that I make about neoliberal multiculturalism. And, and, and I draw on Jody Malamud's version of, or her theorization of neoliberal multiculturalism to make this argument, which is that we see um, teen pregnancy is sort of something that can happen to anyone regardless of your positionality in society, your economic, socioeconomic background or your race. Um, and it, and it's a problem for everyone and it's a problem for everyone. If you experience it because it disrupts your path toward proper adulthood and, um, normal, and it also disrupts your, your experience of normal adolescence, which includes things like, uh, consumerism or consumer consuming certain types of goods and um and socializing in particular ways and so uh this i guess to go back to the idea of neoliberal multiculturalism the um teen pregnancy prevents anyone so the kind of across traditional racial categories categories from achieving this sort of normal adolescence and um and therefore kind of the the uh, proper um consumer behaviors are presenting are presented as uh the path toward adulthood does that make sense i think i kind of got off track a little bit there no and um and i and and, and you do a really good job i think of providing some theoretical understanding of of this bizarre thing we call adolescence because, of course, what's so fascinating about this book, one of the reasons I love studying rhetoric is that we're very used to thinking of adolescence as a real thing. And so when it's violated or something happens and you can't perform your adolescence, we have certain kinds of reactions to that. But of course, that's all part of the construction of the problem in the first place. And sometimes we miss that all of these terms that we're using as we're sort of mortified about this behavior and decontextualizing it from larger systematic issues is that this is a made-up category that uh, at the current moment is doing certain kinds of persuasive work that maybe we're missing and we ought to be paying attention to. But yeah, no, your argument absolutely makes sense. I'm just thinking from um, from a listener's perspective who maybe, first of all, lots of people aren't rhetoricians who listen to this podcast. And also many of them are like, well, I don't understand. I mean, teenagers are getting pregnant and ruins their lives. And it's like, well, yes. I mean, it does, but also that's part of the discourse, right? Yeah. And I think, um, 
So the the question of um, whether or not it ruins their lives is even up for debate. I would I would argue. Um, but but there is this. But that's kind of the that's the panic. That's the exactly. Like, you know, yeah. Stuart Hall calls it. What's he call it? You get the moral panic the, the, of the youths, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and we see an adolescence is this category and, and has been this way for um, a long time, really, that that has all this anxiety around it because it's constructed as this transition into adulthood. And that um, if that transition doesn't go right, then you are ruined, right? And um, oftentimes, and especially in this example of teen pregnancy, but in other examples historically, that whether it goes well or not hinges on proper management of sexuality. And so that is very much the case in, in the example of the pregnancy pact, for instance, where um, there's all this whole scene where she's being seduced and um, by her boyfriend and the boyfriend is allowing her to believe that she's going to, that they're going to marry and have children someday. And so why, and in her mind, why not start that right away? And what, um, what the blogger comes to find out is that she doesn't understand there's some, some, something missing for this girl in terms of understanding her potential to become, uh, successful in the proper way, right? She doesn't have the right kind of ambition to participate in capitalist markets and entrepreneurship, um, and gaining success in the way that she should. And that's sort of her downfall. Um, and so that's interesting. I think too, that, that we now see teen pregnancy is uh, a problem because it prevents a certain type of participation in, in capitalist markets and that sex is actually what, what will prevent teens from, from that participation, even though, um, in other examples that I talk about in the book, you see sex sexualization being utilized to appeal to teens to teach them not to have sex. <laughs> and so that's also sort of an interesting tension that um, that I think happens as a result of the privatization of teen pregnancy prevention that we see in the post-welfare era that like we're, uh, again, in, in neoliberal terms, trying to... Uh, address what, what has previously been considered or what is still considered a public problem with, through private solutions. And that creates a, a set of tensions in terms of um, how, do, how we appeal to an audience and moralize at the same time, if that makes sense. I liked what you said so much. I wrote it down because I was like, "Oh, you phrased that much better than the uh, way I put it in the abstract of the book." Well, not the abstract of the book, but my my readership abstract of the book. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, I should write that sentence down." I mean, yeah, it's in- it's incredibly fascinating, and <laughs> I, I and I love the title of the book, "Mediating Morality," because what what this book does very well that our political landscape does not is talk about these moral issues as discourses that are up for debate, like whether or not being pregnant ruins your life, and and not as moral failures or say moral successes, because obviously the opposite, uh, you know, if you think of, if you think of those as your two choices, then this is sort of a very hard debate to negotiate. It's a mediated issue. I mean, morality is always mediated. It's a kind of mediation itself. And that gets missed in 
policy debates, which, as you point out in the book several times, because the policy is never asking, is this how we want to think about this issue? It just says this is true and now we have to legislate mm-hmm. it. But that, that of course, is always an individual kind of mm-hmm. – it always comes down to like, well, it's individual responsibility and, and it's not a systemic issue. And I guess – well, good. So we, great. So we got the pregnancy pact. I think that was awesome. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Do you want to now kind of cut out to talk a little bit more? Because, I mean, the legal context is a lot of what I was unfamiliar with when I came into the book and really what for me made this such a fascinating read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I talk about in the chapter that's really focused on um, legislative debates at the federal level is how um, right away after welfare reform is passed, teen pregnancy is discussed in a much different terms, um, even within. So my broader argument being that we are we are removing teen pregnancy from the issue of welfare, in which it was so completely embedded prior to welfare reform. And even in the the welfare reform reauthorization debates that happened really only a few years after um, the passage of the original policy, we already see this shift happening where um, we're not debating whether or not the, the teen parent um, rules that are part of temporary assistance to needy families, the, the program that was put in place by the welfare reform policy, we're not debating whether those rules are working or are good. Um, those rules are, so examples of those are um, that adolescent parents have to stay home with a, a have to live with a parent or guardian um, in order to receive their welfare grant. Um, another one is that they they need to be working toward uh, their high school diploma or their GED. Um, and that, and then there are other rules that don't just apply to teen parents, but that are rules that states can opt into, such as the family cap rule, which says that you cannot receive additional grants um, or additional funding, additional money in your monthly grant if you have an additional child. So all of these rules are examples of how the policy aims to engineer certain types of behaviors in welfare recipients and um, you, with through the use of incentives and disincentives. And we don't see any reevaluation of whether or not those rules are useful. And a lot of scholars argue that they are not and that they are punitive. Um, and the there's no in terms of how teen pregnancy is discussed in the debates around welfare reauthorization, there's already no, no attention put toward that. Instead, the debates are almost exclusively, the debates that, that even mention teen pregnancy are almost exclusively about sex education and whether or not um, abstinence-only sex education sex education, abstinence-only education or comprehensive sex education um, would be the best way to get teens to not get pregnant, basically. So um, the the context is, in my opinion, radically shifting in terms of how we are talking about teen pregnancy 
in legislative debates right away after welfare reform is passed. So that's kind of, um, in, in my argument, sort of lays the groundwork for the what we have just been talking about, the popular texts that I analyze that are themselves the uh, result of a partnership between the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy and the various um, media corporations that are producing them. So like Pregnancy Pact, for instance, is a lifetime production that was the result of one of these partnerships. And so um, that's kind of how you see this shift being carried across all of these realms. That sets up really good for the chapter in which you discuss what's happening in New Mexico, which has uh, one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy. And you sort of use it as a place to play out how this discourse kind of on the on the bigger level of this like lifetime movie that was presumably national and maybe somewhat international, because I think I think they're a multinational conglomerate lifetime, um, plays out in a specific state where these policies and these logics are part of the fabric of the state. But of course, they have the highest rates. So it's like, like what's go- how do they justify that disjunct between their policy and their act and their results? And then also you have this interesting um, explanation, which which I kind of maybe had – it wasn't surprising, but I didn't know it about the racial tensions that are very unique to New Mexico in terms of the mestizo population. And so I, I thought that was all really a fascinating way to watch this play out on a on a sort of a – micro level context. Do you want to expand on that or did you want to take the interview now in a different direction? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Cool. Yeah, then let's talk about New Mexico because I really like this. I like that you focus on a specific state because this really lets you look at the meat of how these policies keep happening, even though there's no evidence that this is working. Yeah, it's really fr- – I mean, it was an frustrating book. It was a great read, but part of you is just like, oh, my God, get it together. You know what I mean? Yeah, so tell us more about New Mexico. Yeah, so um, well, it happened to be where I was in grad school, so it was a convenient um, case study for me in that sense. But also it's really interesting, as you mentioned, in terms of this issue because uh, it does have one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the nation. I think at the time I was writing it had the highest. and it it's also a a majority minority state. Um, And so it has, and I guess that's part of my argument that I make about it is that when you, you take this sort of a neoliberal politics of intimate citizenship that I describe happening around, um, you know, across these realms at the national level in terms of popular culture, national advocacy and legislative discourse, when you take that and look at it, in a more localized context, it gets really complicated in terms of um, its competition with other discourses that are already present there or that are are really compelling there. And the two other main um, kind of ways of understanding teen pregnancy that are were already present in New Mexico when 
when the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy was sort of filtering in this this uh, neoliberal politics of intimate citizenship into the state, were um, the, uh, a long history of, of racialized pathologization of teen pregnancy and, of, and of, of the reproduction of people of color in the state in general. And then also in, in, in response to that, I think uh, a long history of really effective grassroots reproductive justice um, advocacy. And so one, one of the things I'm trying to do in that chapter is show that the, the national narrative about teen pregnancy really breaks down a lot in, in response to, or in the context of a more uh, localized situation. And so we see that happening in New Mexico where um, one of the, I talk about a, a few grassroots organizations in that state that are working on dismantling the stigma around um, teen pregnancy. And also, so they're working on sort of a, cult, a culture shift project. And those are primarily Young Women United is the organization that I talk about. And then it's, it's partner organizations um, are... Uh, New Mexico grads, which is an organization that works with young parents to help them um, finish high school and to give them a variety of other types of supports. And then the ACLU of New Mexico are, is another partner of, of Young Women United. And they have worked both in terms of this culture shift to, to change the, the narratives around young parents in New Mexico to talk about them as being uh, good parents and productive citizens and um, in direct opposition to what is normally said about young parents across the nation, right? Um, but they're also working on the on addressing some of the structural issues that are completely erased by this uh, national discourse of intimate citizenship around teen pregnancy. Um, and so they've done they've managed in 2013 to get a law passed that uh, allows or mandates excused absences, a certain number of excused absences for pregnant and parenting students at the high school level. So um, so it, it becomes a really interesting case study because on the one hand, you have really high rates and you have a, a high rate of poverty and um, you have a, a really uh, persistent discourse of Oh, a persistent racist discourse of pathologizing certain reproductive behaviors. Um, but then on the other hand, you have this really pioneering, I, I don't even think I should use that term, but this really um, uh, exciting new work that, um, that pushes back against those things and, 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 and does really work on the structural level to try and make change around this issue. And there, you know, this is so interesting because, of course, sometimes the 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 empowerment narrative is creepy. But in this case, because it's a response to um, what did you call it? It's I think at one point you called it. It's uh, it got rid of a uh, something like a fundamentally judgmental prevention framework, which essentially is a, is a shaming right. It's a shaming politics that, and we all know how well shame works out and sort of. I mean, I know in queer studies, they've kind of reclaimed it for certain kinds of work. But typically, when we're looking at teenagers uh, in a in a non-LGBTQ context, shame is just not effective. 
and then turning it into kind of a, if you don't like the word empowerment, then sort of the idea that like if we're gonna like it is your body and you need to be learn how to make decisions with it, and if that decision is still the same outcome, we're not gonna judge you. And I, I it was yeah, it was an interesting point because I mean. We've been taught, I think, as rhetorical critics in the neoliberal era to hate the word empowerment. But then you kind of look at it here and you're like, see, it's not the word. It's the – it's what it, – it's kind of, it's kind of work it's doing. And if this is the kind of work that was not being done for people, then then it's exciting. So I really liked this part. I mean it was – it's also nice of you, frankly, to do the work to find something to provide as like a relief to the reader because you need moments of – hope or this or this stuff is just really exhausting. I'm sure it was for you writing it. Yeah, I mean, but it was also really exciting to I I thought there was just so many um fortuitous things going on at the moment that I, I don't know that when I signed up to <laughs> in a sense signed up to do this project that I um that I knew all of, I didn't realize that there was all of this work being exciting work being done, not just in New Mexico, but um, in other parts of the country and sort of those, all of those different groups connecting to each other and pushing back against the, I had spent a lot of time thinking about what, what were the dominant narratives and how they had shifted over time. And then to kind of realize that, and of course it makes sense that there were the people, especially the people being affected by these narratives are going to be responding to them, you know? Um, and it just worked out well for me to be able to um, look at some examples of that and um, hold them up as, as an alternative way of understanding this issue. That um, a couple of years ago there was a bill passed that sort of what was it? It, it kind of treated it's kind of essentially extended to par- teen parents. It might have just been the mothers. I don't think it was progressive enough to extend to like the teen fathers, but um, kind of like had like a work policy where they got sort of like maternity leave, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in New Mexico. Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That was and- that was really fascinating. I thought that was kind of a cool way to to kind of a cool legislation option. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, and I think that it addresses this issue that doesn't get discussed very often, which Mm -hmm. is that a lot of times when we talk about the negative outcomes of young parents, we attribute those outcomes to the fact that they became young parents instead of attributing them to the discrimination that young parents face as a result of the dominant narratives that we tell about about them, you know, and that's something that, again, Young Women United has really uh, brought to the fore. And I think that's why they um, wanted to push for that legislation, because when we understand it that way, we realize that there are things that we need to do to change the actual structures, as opposed to just trying to teach young people what they should or shouldn't be doing sexually. Yeah, I mean, th- yeah, this was a. I mean, I really enjoyed this paragraph. It, um, I'm very sensitive about book, and you were very nice, by the way, to not only send me a hard copy of your book, but to sign it. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're the only person who I have. The, I have the only the only signed copy I've ever gotten. Wow, but I don't. Really? I don't like to earmark my books. I it stresses me out. I don't like to put little dents in my books. But I did um, earmark this this page. Uh, so you write. 
that in April 2013, New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez announced that she signed into law the bill that the Young Women's, I'm sorry, what, what Young Women United yeah. and NM grads promoted to serve those ends. HB 300, school excused absences for pregnancy, mandates all New Mexico public school districts and charter schools to enact a policy allowing for a minimum of 10 days of excused absence for the birth of a child and four days of excused absence throughout the year for prenatal care and parenting. This victory was the product of a large-scale mobilization of pregnant and parenting teens, as well as strategic work with both Democrat and Republican state legislatures. The agenda addresses some of the shortcomings with the structure within the structure of public education for dealing with pregnant and parenting teens. It also works to replace images of ir- irresponsible, deviant teen parents with those of responsible, hardworking young people. And of course, yeah. And then you mentioned it is kind of a like a, a bit of a of a tiny dent in terms of overall impact. But right now we have something that is not the usual. And can we see what that's doing? And could we work with that? And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, I, I don't know that this was obviously a concern of yours, but this kind of a paragraph also makes me think of the growing trend toward privatization in schools. Mm-hmm. Because of course, mm-hmm. let's suppose we do fight the legislative battle and get something like this for all of the states that that's even more progressive. What if all the public schools are by then half private schools? Right. Yeah, well, and it's interesting thinking about that right now as I sit in New Orleans, (laughs) where all of the schools in New Orleans are charter schools or private schools, right? We don't have any normal or any um, of your regular public schools anymore. Yeah, Um, I mean, well, and I just interviewed, um, gosh, I can remember who it was, but they have been doing a lot of advocacy, I think, in Arizona, maybe. Uh, Oh, I know who it is. It's um, Sharon Kirsch. And so we just interviewed Mm -hmm. her about this book she wrote on Gertrude Stein that is just fabulous. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, she hasn't been working on her scholarship recently. She's been doing activism in Arizona to fight the privatization trend in the in the schools and the charter schools because you know. And she she works for an organization, um, Arizona Now, Arizona United, I think that is fighting this. And one of the reasons they're fighting it is because then then when policy gets enacted, there's no way to enforce it because the system of schooling isn't a state school anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very frustrating, but, you know, it was still exciting to sort of see that there had been some kind of like little, uh, I guess we'll call it like a, like a beta test of a potential solution there that may or may not. Does anybody, do you know if there's been any follow-up with that in terms of its success rates or if anybody's been able to make the argument that this could be widely adopted? That is a great question. And I do not know. Okay. No worries. I do not. My, my, I'm not, this is not an interrogation. All right. So, but yeah, it was nice. And I, you know, I like I like to keep my readers listening. I, I remember when I wanted to study um, indigenous rights in Canada for my dissertation and my advisor just looked at me and said, it's so depressing. If you cannot spend two years working on this, mm-hmm. you will burn yourself out. And I did appreciate the advice, but also part of me thinks like, no, I mean, there have to be, there have to be points of pushback. Like there's just no way that there's not something. And frankly, if nobody is willing to wade through this upset stuff and put that aside, you don't get to the fact that there might be solutions to these problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, same thing. Cause you've got, the, you've got also these interesting uh, like Hispanic initiatives and Latino initiatives in New Mexico mm-hmm. um, that also have been doing a lot of work around this issue, which is great. Yes. Yeah. It's really, I, I think um, what's going on in New Mexico is, they're at the forefront, uh, I think, of mm-hmm. of re envisioning how we think about 
young pregnancy. And in fact, they, um, young women united and their partners have really pushed the, um, the shift in the language that we use to talk about this issue. So away from the, the term teen pregnancy and toward, um, pregnant and parenting youth or young, young parents. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but you must have. Either that or I Googled a few things, terms, and it came up. But I was thinking, too, that there's been a push um, to change students who uh, uh, students who work to work work to um, workers who study. Mm, Similar mm-hmm. kind of move, right, that, yeah. that that label matters. And if you say teen, pregnant teens, it doesn't get at the fact that they are maybe just like another kind of parent, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I liked the, it actually made me think this would make its great own project that teenage pregnancy, a new beginning written by the new futures educators that you write about Mm -hmm. also in chapter four. Mm -hmm. And it was started in 1983, which I can imagine the 1983 version. And then it had several revisions. And then in 2006 is the, I think the version you're looking at, it'd be really fascinating to look at how that changes over 20 years. Yes. But in its final version, it's sort of this, um, non-condescending advice to, uh, what are, what are we going to call them? To student parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. About, um, you have a choice and you can do this and you can do that and you can regret it or you cannot. And if people want to treat like a child, you can react like a child, but it's very much a choice-based discourse. And I really, I'd only obviously got like a little bit of it, but I re- yeah, this was really interesting to me because, of course, I'm seeped in this neoliberal mentality of individual choice. So every part of me is going like, this is awful. We can't do this. <laughs> but then every part of my rhetoric brain is like, choice is the move, right? Choice is exactly what you do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I found this was very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think as long as it's situated within a, a larger discussion of structural issues, you right? Know, I think yeah. that's one of the issues that we see happening Um, that have happened, especially historically with the reproductive rights movement, right? And why reproductive justice was, uh, at least one of the reasons reproductive justice was founded by women of color in the 90s was to kind of address the the ways in which the choice framework doesn't allow for, or can in certain iterations not allow for um, us to see how our reproductive behavior and decisions are um, situated within varying levels of privilege or burden on this, you know, uh, socially, so socially, socially, economically, politically, et cetera. So, um, so it is, I think that, that, that book um, is an example that I draw on to show that this, um, this movement to push back against dominant narratives has been happening maybe largely under the radar for a long time. Well, yeah. And I mean, again, well, it's interesting too, because I, one of the things I was expecting to see in this book is that movie Juno that came out Mm, because it was such a, so controversial in terms of it's, and you do raise it in the sense of, um, in a sense of it's like it's a it's a white middle to upper middle class pregnancy that this that this girl goes through so it doesn't it's sort of like carefree and relatively like consumerist but one of the things i remember people pushing back about about that movie and again this does not solve legislative problems and i think one of the things i like about this book is it doesn't substitute 
thinking about ideology, discourse, and polit- in political culture for doing the, the hard work of looking at legislation. Um, so I don't mean to be, I don't mean to like make this about this movie. I'm just, I thought it was interesting <laughs> that, um, that one of the controversial things about this is that the, when she got pregnant, it didn't seem to be because she was morally inadequate. In fact, what was bizarre about the movie is that it was a very strangely rational behavior and also very non, like everyone around her was very emotional and worked up about the situation, but there wasn't this kind of morally deficient hysteria surrounding her pregnancy. And and so I'm not saying like this, I'm not saying it's even a model, but there was something people kind of picked up that like, where's the, where's the something, where's the pathologization of her choice? And it wasn't really there. And I don't think they were doing that politically. I think, frankly, it was just kind of one of these indie movies that always wants to do everything just a little bit different than everyone else just for the sake of doing it. But you do notice it now that like, oh, that pathologization piece is kind of in some ways optional, but we don't need to pathologize people to make better rules. Right. Well, and I think it that narrative resonates with some of the um, some of the examples within Sixteen and Pregnant that show in terms of like how does the what are what is the outcome of the pregnancy if it's a if it's an adoption ah, into true uh, an upper middle class white household, then the teenager who gave birth can be lauded. You know? Right. They're retroactively constituted as as sort of like a, it, this was a deviation from what they should have been doing kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Ah. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, I do. Okay. I agree, though, that there are some differences in the ways that the pregnancy itself is being portrayed in Juno. And one of the things that I think the, one of the reasons I didn't focus in on that film is because I was focusing on the the texts that were a product of that partnership between the national campaign and um and the media conglomerates. Right. So I didn't Mm. um, focus on that one because it wasn't, as far as I know, it wasn't an intentional partnership. Right. Which is fine. I mean, again, I'm not, you don't need to defend your choices. The book was fabulous. I was just, the pathologization part I found was fascinating. Um, And also do you, I do want to talk more about the legislation, but one thing that was in this book that I found really fascinating was this app that you, that you talk about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is sort of a different kind of political popular culture text that honestly uh, was really neat because it's, we haven't really talked about, uh, you know, it's not even social media or it's an app, Mm -hmm. it's software. We haven't talked about software much on this podcast as being like a text that perpetuates certain kinds of norms of behavior. Do you want to talk about that or would you maybe like to go over to another case study about legislation? No, that sounds good. Um, Yeah. So that in, in my chapter where I really talk about the origins of the national campaign, I also um, kind of delve into their, their work that they have done with social media and new media in general. And like um, looking at uh, how they have created a lot of, I don't know that they've been effective in terms of how how much young people have actually engaged with these technologies, um, but how they and and uh, their partner organization, the Candies Foundation, have created these disciplinary tactics through the use of things like online browser games and social media esque websites and this. Um, the Candies Foundation created this app, which I think you're talking about the Crybaby app, right? 
It's like if you get turned on, listen to this baby cry at you. Right. <laughs> which is just which goes against everything that I know about psychology and human motivation. Uh-huh. Right? right. Future discounting. I mean, you're not you're not gonna think about a future consequence and have it have nearly the impact as the instant gratification. I mean, it's just a basic principle. Like, do we think that teens just operate according to some totally different law of psychology? <laughs> right. It's just bizarre. Anyway, yeah, I, I just found this so fascinating. I even went online and looked at videos of people using the app. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's sort of what – so my take on it is that it, they, of course – I assume they didn't actually think that teens would really stop making out with each other and, and look at this app to try and, um, you know, because they, they do make it seem as though that's what the purpose of it is with the tagline, which I can't remember off the top of my head now, but it's basically like, you know, cool off from your hot moment <laughs> by listening to this baby cry. Right. I, I don't, I, my, my take on it is that they are, that it's a way of generating a, a consensus um, that whether people are using it in in their their moments when the I can't I'm trying to remember what the exact phrase is that they use in the heat of the moment right um, or not is that just the use of it itself and the sharing of it and the making videos of it and all of that is a way of generating this consensus around whether or not teens should be having sex and getting pregnant. And again, de detached from any of the structural factors that like, such as whether they have access to contraception um, or whether they have had sex ed in which they learned about the consequences of various types of sex. It's completely detached from that. It's just a matter of teaching them, that everybody thinks that parenting and adolescence don't go together. Interestingly enough, I I don't know of I don't know, but I know of the digital this the digital art director who conceptualized and designed that app, Sarah Kovaliski. I don't know why I know that. I but I um when I looked it up and they I think it's and I also get the sense it's kind of been discontinued from my research, which probably suggests what it was happening. But yeah, there was there was this weird, yeah, it was something like cool, cool down. If it get, don't get caught in the moment or get caught, yeah, it was, it was just, it was a very strange set of things. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's sort of as a as a rhetorical strategy to generate consensus. I can see it having maybe d- different value than as an actual like effectivity tool, right? Well, and also, I mean, the other aspect of it that's so interesting is the the um, variously raced babies, right? That you. You can choose which baby you want to hear crying. And in a sense, that's them appealing uh, to a variety of populations or attempting to appeal to a variety of populations. But in my argument, it's also an example of neoliberal multiculturalism in the sense that race is presented as something that is incidental or um, inconsequential. Um, it's valorized in a certain sense. It's valorized as, as a symbol of inclusion. Um, but it is stripped of all of its, uh, substantive meaning. And, um, that's a really interesting example of that as, as, um, there are other examples too. Um, the national campaign produces a lot of, um, or did produce, I think they've sort of shifted with their rebranding. They've shifted their, tactics and their focus uh, quite a bit. And that just happened like a year ago. 
But um, at that, during the time of my writing, they produced a lot of social media and browser games that utilized a lot of that same kind of multicultural discourse. I think as the the readers or the listeners rather, the potential readers who are current listeners are aware, we only cover, I mean, maybe like, what do you think, a third or maybe not even half of the, if we're lucky, we cover half of the things that this book goes into. I mean, we ha- and we don't, and we haven't done a lot of the theory, just because of because kind of on purpose. I just don't necessarily love it when people just talk about theory on these. I, I mean, I like to kind of get to the meat, but you know, your use of Foucauldian biopolitics and brilliant stuff on intimate citizenship, and of course, all kinds of different people on neoliberalism and multiculturalism is all fascinating. But, but of course, all things that I think we touched upon. It's just there's a lot mm-hmm. left in this book that unfortunately we don't have time to go into. Mm-hmm. So. The app gets us one thing, but of course you have all of these things about these these this gamification of pregnancy prevention and what's that and what that's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we are at about an hour, so I just wanted to kind of like observe our readers' time and yours as well. I mean, sure. we both have like you know lots of stuff to do today, <laughs> and just say how much I enjoyed the book and the conversation was fabulous. And you really have, I mean, even if no one ever reads it, which lots of people I'm sure will, I at least now have a great text to assign for my students. Oh, great. That cool. I know they will love because, of course, they they really buy – I mean, I think yours probably do too, right? Wholeheartedly into teenage pregnancy prevention as a moral failure in part because they go to college because they never got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And they think of that as something that's virtuous about them. Right. So mm-hmm. it's a really interesting place to push them on that because they're very defensive of that move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. All right. Well. Thank you so much um, for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. It was one, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to read it. And once again, uh, the show notes will have a link to the University of Massachusetts Press and the Amazon links where you can pick up Claire's book. And also, I uh, I did check as I like to do, and the Kindle price on this on Amazon is very reasonable. And I also like to let everyone know that we do New Books Network is in part we're a nonprofit, and none of us get paid for this, and we are supported by the University Press. We're very happy that the University of Massachusetts Press is supporting this book. And so we like to support them as well. And if you are not interested in purchasing this book for yourself or someone else, you can always consider asking your library, either public or academic, you know, both both are perfectly valid libraries, to purchase a book to have on hand, because especially something that's this closely engaged with a current issue in our culture, this is a great thing to have available to circulate. So if you do have the ability to direct purchasing requests, that might be something else you can do to, to not only support the work that Claire's done, but also the University Press. Um, and then Claire, did you want to maybe plug or suggest a book that I might follow up on for the next podcast? Yeah. Um, well, I uh, a book that I am uh, really into promoting <laughs> um, is called Embodying the Problem by Jenna Vinson, who's a, an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. And this is a, also a book about the rhetoric of teen pregnancy. Um, and she looks, well, first she provides a really um, nice historical background to this, the construction of the social problem. Um, and then she analyzes uh, the racialized rhetorics in the, in the, late seventies, early eighties in terms of the visual rhetoric, um, on magazine covers. And, um, she does a really nice analysis of that. And then she focuses, the main focus of her book is on resistive rhetorics. So the ways in which young parents themselves have, uh, written about and talked about and responded to even just even responded to people on the street who point out, uh, 
or who pass judgment on them as they live their lives. She, she talks about all of these different ways in which young parents are resisting these dominant narratives. So it's a really great and interesting analysis. I highly recommend. That sounds fabulous. I'm very excited. So then that's Rutgers and that's very recent, right? Just like your Mm -hmm. book is like in the last year or two. Yes. Great. Well, awesome. Well, I will reach out to Jenna and um, stay tuned for uh, rhetoric and motherhood in teenage parent, teenage parent. No, no, what is it? Parenting teens. Young, young parents. Young parents. Okay. (laughs) Stay tuned for rhetoric and young parents part two. And thanks again, Claire. This was fabulous. Listening audience, thank you so much. And if you have questions or comments, my name is Lee Pierce. I can be reached at piercel at geneseo.edu. And Claire, if anyone has questions, do you like? Uh, do you want to give out your email or can they just Google Claire at Tulane and f- find you? Yep. My email is cdaniel and then the number five at tulane.edu. Yep. And I've got links to um, our profile pages in the show notes as well. Well, thanks again, Claire. And listeners, we will talk to you soon. <laughs>